The dependence that we have on avoidance and needing gratification right away sets our kids up, especially when they see us model that behavior of, oh man, this day was so hard. I just really need a drink to unwind. Or we're going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and boy, there better be enough wine there because Uncle Joe is going to be there and Uncle Joe makes me really anxious. Rather than dealing with the anxiety that resides within the relationship with Uncle Joe. So I'm never going to tell parents that they can't drink in front of their kids, but I am going to say that you have to be really careful about the messaging you're giving your kids around why you drink. That's Jessica Leahy, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Jessica Leahy. Jessica is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont. She currently serves as a recovery coach at Santa and Stowe, a medical detox and recovery center in Stowe, Vermont, where 100% of her salary goes to a scholarship fund for young adults. Jessica writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Washington Post, New York Times, and The Atlantic. She also wrote an educational curriculum for Amazon Kids award-winning The Stinky and Dirty Show and co-hosts the Hashtag AmWriting Podcast. In this episode, we explore Jessica's new book, The Addiction Inoculation, the complexity around whether adolescents develop substance use issues, Jessica's personal experiences later in life with addiction, the role that AA has played in her recovery, the missing gaps in our education system for preventing substance use disorders, and what it means to live in a culture of dependence. This was a great conversation. I'm really glad I got to speak with Jessica about this. We hadn't really done anything on substance use disorders, especially with um, adolescents. And so it was really good to pick her brain and learn about her own life experiences and see how that informs her current work. And thank you to all the listeners for being here and listening to the podcast. It means a lot to me. Um, if you want to support the show, you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, share with a friend, or just keep listening. I really appreciate it. Um, all right. And without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Jessica Leahy. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. I'm really excited to be asked. Thank you so much. Do you like doing interviews, podcasts like these? I do, especially since they help me. I, so I do a lot of speaking and well, pre-COVID, like 70% of my income came from speaking and, you know, once COVID hit, that changed. But um, the benefit, though, of releasing this book with a lot of interviews, as opposed to me being up on stage saying things, is that I've had a lot of interviews to work through lots of different parts of the material. And so, you know, my thinking has evolved as I've done lots of interviews. And, and I think as a teacher, you know, I don't really understand something until I've had the opportunity to explain it to someone else. So it's always helpful for me to help other people understand the work that I do. So I, I love doing them. Mm, that's interesting. There's almost two sides to the process of writing and putting out a book. There's like everything you have to do mm -hmm. on the front load of writing it. And then there's the back end of being able to yeah. talk about it and explain it yeah. to others. Well, and I also, I, as a speaker, I really am a fan of, um, 
of talks. I don't use slides or anything. And I'm a real fan of talks that have a narrative through line and an arc and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that takes time to develop. And so doing a lot of interviews, what I usually do when I'm speaking is I force myself to try one new thing every single time I I do a speaking event. And so if it flops, it's only a small part of what I'm doing and I can sort of then either use it or not moving forward. And, um, and that's been really effective and, and, you know, doing a ton of interviews for this book, as opposed to being on a lot of stages has been an opportunity for me to try lots of little things. So it's been Mm. really good. Could you say more about that? What, what are, what would be a little thing, new thing you would try? Uh, the order of things, um, as I, in fact, I was, uh, my husband went with me (laughs) to a speaking event in New Jersey two weeks ago. And I generally don't like for him to come to my events until like that often, because, uh, you know, at a certain point, I I worry that he's going to be like, oh, that wasn't as good as it was the last time she did it or, or that's, or I've heard that before and that's getting tired or whatever. So, um, and he, you know, he, he came to see me at my first live event in front of a lot of people in a long time. And so I was rusty and, um, it was also very funny because about, I don't know, 15 minutes into the talk, I realized no one was looking at me. They were all looking past me at something else and and kind of giggling and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And there was a family of raccoons (laughs) that had emerged from a little alcove. It was an outdoor event. And so they were coming out of the out onto the roof of that, the garage behind me, like a house thing behind me. And, um, and at that point you just have to laugh and share the stage with the family of raccoons. Um, but anyway, as we were driving away and I wasn't in the moment, you know, I get a real rush from things real, from really nailing it. And I wasn't feeling that. And so I was able to talk through what happened and what went where. And he said, you know, here's where you could have brought in this other point and here. And so it was, it's really helpful for me when I try these new small things that um, I have an opportunity to sort of reflect either myself or with someone else. And, and he's, you know, he suggested this one new thing that I'm going to do next week when I'm in Tennessee speaking to um, a huge crowd. And, you know, I think it's going to work really well to tie together a couple of bits that have been sort of dangling out there on their own. So sometimes it's about narrative arc. Sometimes it's about a story I've never told before. Sometimes it's a joke that I try that because there's a lot of jokes, um, especially my gift to failure um, stuff. And sometimes they land and sometimes they don't, which has been hard during COVID because many of my events are virtual and the way it works with virtual events is small ones. Sometimes there's a, I can see all the people cause they're in there with me, but most often it's just my face and like I can speak and I have no idea how anything's landing. I can't see any faces. I can't, you know, it's a bit of a nightmare when I can't see how stuff is landing and I can't know, you know, what to pull back on or when to switch topics. And I can usually key into the audience and tell when they're fidgeting and maybe they're getting bored with a certain direction and I should switch or when they perk up and they're really liking something and I should go with that instead. Um, and I Mm -hmm. can't, you know, when I can't see that, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. A lot of what you're describing shares the same dynamics of like a stand-up comedian or a, a musician. That's just performing the, or entertaining yeah, in general. Yeah. And, and for me, this is, it's being on stage is a very performative, especially since the territory that I walk is very, it's a very thin line between being, um, a jerk who's just telling you what to do and telling you things that you're going to, that you should be afraid that you're not doing and, and ways that you should be nervous about your parenting versus, you know, someone who's making light of, you know, the, the very serious problems that we're dealing with. So there's a really fine line I have to walk and balancing on that line is really fun for me. And, and being able to make jokes within the context of something that's challenging is also fun for me. And so I, I love it. And I've, you know, I did a lot of theater when I was younger, but I actually prefer this because this is about, um, connecting, really connecting with people in about something that, you know, really means something to them in a very personal way because they're there because they're want to learn more about, you know, how to be a better parent or how to prevent substance abuse in their kids, that kind of stuff. So anyway, I love being on stage. I love doing this stuff. Do you think finding that balance in between those two ends that you just described, um, bringing in your own personal experience helps that? 
Yeah, I really think it does. Plus the nature of what I do as a journalist. Uh, someone asked me once when I was writing for the Atlantic um, and, and my pieces were doing really well. They said, well, how do you know what people want to read? Cause you seem to do pretty well with, and I said, well, honestly, I don't think a lot. I think a little bit about what other people might want to read, but for the most part, I'm finding things that I, as a parent or an educator are, uh, that I'm, curious about and I want to know more about. And, you know, I sort of figure it's the same thing as, you know, if in a classroom, you know, if you have a question about something, then I bet you someone else in the room has the same question. So, and I really, really love, um, I love the gray areas um, where there isn't an easy answer. I sort of love, especially with the the addiction inoculation, so much of substance use prevention is there is no easy answer. And it really does depend on the situation and the kid and the family and the parent and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of people, um, you know, the internet tends to be a place of pronouncements, like if you do this, this will work kind of thing. And that's just not how a lot of this works. And so I have to help other people be comfortable with that gray area too. And I think humor helps that. I think um, acknowledging that this, that I've made all of these mistakes already, this is territory that I've already been through as a parent or as an educator um, and being able to, you know, make fun of myself um, and laugh about it, I think is the way that we move forward and continue to learn. So it's works. Mm. It works for me. It seems to work, you know, for the people, you know, when I'm up talking about this stuff. So I think a lot of, especially parenting educators, um, there's a lot of pronouncements about what's wrong and what's right and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And it's not often that cut and dry and that's okay. Yeah. You can't really, there aren't really rules for these things. They're very nuanced and it's about helping someone be able to show up in each one of these critical moments. Yeah. Well, and if you look, yeah. And if you look around the parenting section, you know, in one spot, there's a book that says of a bookstore and, you know, you see the book that says, you know, you can totally train your baby from the moment they drop out of the womb. And then there's a whole other book next to it in the same section that says, you know, don't, train your baby because it will scar them for life. You know, there's, there's, there's so many pronouncements about, you know, this is the way. And the problem is, is that there, you know, there isn't one right way to do things. There's, there are general guidelines and there's what the research shows and there's what, you know, we've found about what works for education and learning and things like that, um, that tend to, uh, to work for a lot of kids. But, um, but anyway, I really like, I really like living in those gray areas. It's, it's fun for me. Mm-hmm. Well, with your new book, the addiction inoculation, that there's a lot of gray area in that topic and uh, how it shows up for different people. Um, could you share a little bit more about this new book? Yeah. And, yeah. So this book came out of, you know, I, I wrote The Gift of Failure first, and that came out in 2015, and that was a fantastic experience, and it did really well. And then there's that, it's it's a, such a gift when something does really well, but there's also that curse of, you know, what are you doing next, and how is it going to be, you know, greeted mm-hmm. with the same excitement? And there had been a huge auction for Gift of Failure. It was like, you know, 14 different editors bidding on this book. It was a big deal. And, and so now, uh, you know, at moving past that and, you know, continuing to go, be out on the road um, talking about gift of failure stuff, the big question was, what was I going to do next? And my agent was great. She wasn't really um, pressuring me, but I was pressuring myself. I, you know, I was eager to get back to writing another book. And I wrote a whole bunch of proposals. Um, and finally, it sort of all came to coalesce for me in my head at one time and sort of dropped into my lap. And it came out of the fact that I got sober in 2013, right after I sold the gift of failure. Um, and as soon as I got sober and I'd known for a long time that I needed to get sober, that was not in question. Um, but as soon as I got sober in 2013, my brain immediately went to, okay, well, I was raised by an alcoholic and my alcohol uh, and one of my parents was raised by an alcoholic. And then that's the case also in my husband's side of the family. Um, so how does, how does this stop with me? How do I make this intergenerational thing stop with me? And, um, you know, the, 
the thinking is, is that substance use disorder is preventable, but what on earth does that mean? That's such a huge word. And there's so much um, disagreement about what works and what doesn't work in prevention. So my job is super fun. I get to have this question of what really works for prevention, especially for kids uh, who are born with a genetic predisposition for it, as my kids are. And it looks like genetics is about 50 to 60% of the risk picture. Um, what works and what doesn't. And uh, I just get to read everything <laughs> everything out there and digest it and uh, come to the conclusions that the research leads me to. And the gray areas there were really fun. Like um, there, there's a chapter on peers, on peer influence. And, and the the story in prevention, well, the story has always been among the experts that peer cohort is super important to, um, as a risk factor for kids. So if your kids' friends do drugs, your kid is way more likely to do drugs. So that sounds really simple, right? Never, ever let your kid around someone who does drugs or alcohol. And, Easy. you know, that makes, right, that makes super duper sense. But it's not that simple. And when I started looking at the research and also when I looked at an experience that I'd had with my older son, who's now 22, um, just finishing college, his uh, one of his good friends in high school um, was a kid who made me super nervous. His name was Brian. His name is Brian. And he uses his real name in the book. And I profile him for the peers chapter, the peer chapter. Um, Brian got kicked out of high school one, two, three, four times. And and uh, for his drug and alcohol use, behavioral issues and drug and alcohol use. And um, my son and my son's friends who um, were on the cross country team with him stayed very loyal to him and wanted to go visit him and wanted to be there for him. And of course, this made me super nervous. I'm like, you know, the more Ben's around this kid, Brian, the more chance, you know, the chances are that my kid's going to do drugs and alcohol. And, you know, Statistically, that may be true, but in the end, this relationship ended up being formative for both Brian and Ben. Um, ben and his friends ended up being the thing in the end, the thing that Brian was not willing to lose and therefore the breakthrough moment for him to change what he was doing. And Ben got a really close up and personal look at what happens when alcohol and drugs starts to starts to run your life. So, you know, in our family's experience with this specific scenario, it was actually a really great thing that my mm. kid um, was close with someone who was having issues, drugs and alcohol. Of course, there was tons of supervision from, uh, you know, discussion, not supervision, that's the wrong word, but a lot of talking. And I said very early on, you know, if you're going to remain close with Brian and support him, I think that is fantastic. But just for my reassurance, we're going to need to talk about it a lot. And he's like, okay, cool. And we did. And, uh, and it ended up being really positive, but that's an example of, you know, where the rule may look really simple and cut and dried. And yet in application, there are lots of different ways it can go. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of that in the book. Yeah. And it shows how having a transparent and open and trusting relationship underneath that sort of, um, yeah. more of a preventative factor than the risk associated with having a friend. Yeah. And it, when people sort of ask as, you know, closing questions, so what are the takeaways you want parents to have? You know, for me, they've been talk early and talk often, mainly because, um, you know, preventing substance use, if we wait until like middle school, we're waiting too late. You would just really has to start very, very young. And the more often you have questions about things or the more often you have discussions about things that are challenging, that are make you feel a little oogie inside, um, the easier they become. And so that's definitely the case with, you know, talks about um, substances, talks about, you know, sex. Uh, so have those conversations a lot and magically they become easier to have. And they aren't this huge, like, duh, 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 we're going to have the sex talk or the drug talk right now. It, it's where everyone sort of freezes up and they're like, oh no, here it comes. It's just something we talk about all the time. And for my kids in particular, I don't have time to, I, you know, my kids are, at a much increased risk and they're older and I just don't have time to pretend that this, you know, to mess around with not talking about this, this has to be something we talk about a lot. So. Mm. Well, I know a big part of what led you to write this book was your own experience with alcohol, which stemmed from, um, 
your experiences as a child. Would you mm-hmm. be willing to share a little bit more of the context around yeah, that? Sure. So as I said, I have a parent who um, is an alcoholic who's in recovery now. Um, but when I was little, it was really... Oh, it was so confusing and so upsetting, mainly because I had one parent who was an alcoholic and another parent who was a massive, um, in massive denial, uh, hated conflict, didn't want to talk about the, uh, them as Susan Cheever calls it, you know, this massive elephant in the room. It's, it's there, it's smashing our, our family life. And yet we are not allowed to acknowledge that it's there in the room. Um, every time my sister, or I would talk about, say, you know, we think, um, that there's something going on here. We think, you know, our parent is, um, is drunk or drinking too much. The other parent would say, you know, no, that's not what you're seeing. No, you're just not, that's not, you know, you misunderstand, you know, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. which is gaslighting, which, you know, tells kids dearest, what you are perceiving is not what you are perceiving. And so it causes the child to feel really, um, unsure about their own perceptions and, and, and and then you have trust issues and, you know, it became a me and my sister against this big alcoholism thing that was taking over and ruining our family. And my sister and I would sort of tag team and say, okay, it's your turn to bring it up this time. But, you know, and, uh, you know, fortunately for us, um, uh, they're in recovery now, but, it took a long time and it was really traumatic. And I think for me, the thing that was most traumatic about it was the gaslighting and the, um, the inability, we were not allowed to name it for what it was. And I think that's a big part of what I've, why I do what I do. I hate euphemisms and I feel it's really important to be honest, really honest. And I think it's important to name things. And the way we, when we do that, when we name the things that are upsetting us, uh, making us mentally unhealthy, you know, emotionally unhealthy, that's um, the best way through. That's how we um, sort of banish the shame and the guilt and all that sort of stuff. So I think a lot of what, where I've ended up is a reaction to that sort of like, no, 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 don't talk about that. That's not what you're seeing. Um, Let's pretend it's something else. You know, let's, we'll call it a nap, but what it really is, is being passed out or recovering from a binge, that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, I don't have time for euphemisms. we don't do that around here. And we're, we're very transparent and honest in our talk about, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex and all the things that we talk about in this family. Mm-hmm. Well, that must, that must have been really challenging when you were younger because I imagine it made you question or have trouble trusting your own intuition. Yeah. And I can't think of the time, you know, it's really hard to pinpoint when I was sure when it went from, I'm scared to mention this because I think that's what's happening to, Mm. I absolutely know this is what's happening and don't you dare gaslight me. So, Mm. and of course I didn't then understand what gaslighting was. Um, so it wasn't until I was, and I don't remember specifically when that was, when I got old enough to say really clearly, I am sure. And, you know, especially with drinking people who drink or use drugs are so good at, um, and I was, I was a master at hiding. I mean, my, my, uh, husband really had no idea how much I was drinking and he's really perceptive. He's extremely perceptive. Um, and I'm just, I was really good at lying and hiding. And that's what people who are really in the throes of deep, um, substance use disorder do. And it, you know, as, as things got sloppier, as I was getting older and, and things became more out in the open simply because the person was getting deeper and deeper into a hole, um, you know, it became easier for me to say, ah, there it is. There's the evidence. I know what I'm seeing and you can't, you know, here's the evidence. You can't refute this. And yet they still did. And that continued until, um, throughout my young adult life. Hmm. But by then I I was really sure of my own perceptions. So if, if I, if I'm correct, there was a, there was a gap though in your timeline, right. Of being, being younger and not drinking and, and Mm -hmm. being sort of committed to that. And then it changing later on in life, which is, which is an interesting timeline for you. Like what happened during that time? 
Yeah, I thought this was a really unusual story and still until I started telling this story and then people came out of the woodwork to say, oh my gosh, that's exactly my story. The story that I tended to hear in recovery a lot was, you know, oh, I had my first drink at whatever, usually between like nine to 13. And oh my gosh, that was it. That was the answer to my social anxiety, my feeling like I didn't fit in my whatever. That was the key to the lock. That was the Mm -hmm. thing. That was the answer for me. And that's a really common experience. And that's, you know, that's some people's story for me. That was definitely not my story. Um, alcohol and drugs, uh, scared me enough. It had, I was so angry. I was very, very angry at this monolithic, this elephant <laughs> that yeah. I stayed as far away as possible. I mean, I did, I did drink a little bit when I was young. It didn't really do much for me. Um, I could, you know, definitely take it or leave it. I, and I, but I also really liked, you know, my role in my house, um, was as the helper, as the one, you know, I placated, I fixed, I helped, I made people feel better. So, um, I took that out into the big world and I was the one who held the hair back while the friend puked. And I was the, I was always the designated driver. And when I, um, was in college, I became the peer drug and alcohol counselor and the person who, you know, if kids got in trouble, like if a frat got in trouble um, at my college at University of Massachusetts, I was the person they would sort of send in to, you know, with my pie charts and things and, you know, (laughs) explain to them just how damaging alcohol was, that kind of thing. I was super fun. I was really fun. Um, And I became an RA. So that way I, a resident assistant, that way I was in a position of authority and it was, uh, the onus was on me to be a good role model and not drink and stuff like that. So I did a lot of rescuing of other people though. Um, uh, and it wasn't really until my late, late thirties, really early forties that it just started creeping in, you know, one glass of wine at the end of the day with dinner became two, which became three, which became, Oh my gosh, I need it while I'm making dinner. And there won't be enough for my husband. When he comes home, he was um, in medical training and uh, there was, he just wasn't home a lot, but when he came home, you know, it, it was important that, you know, he got the rest and the sleep and we had little babies and, you know, so I need to make sure that maybe there's a second bottle for me so that by the time he gets home, there's still enough and he won't suspect. And then it just turned into, you know, in the book, I talk about, you know, all kinds of weird rituals I had for making sure that there was enough alcohol. Boy, it was, took a lot of energy. And that's, that's the main thing when people talk about, you know, what has sobriety been like for me? I'm like, Oh, it's been relaxing because there was so much stress. There was, you know, I always had to be the one to do the recycling because there were things hidden in the recycling bin and I didn't want him to see those. So I was always, you know, like, Oh, you think it's gross to touch the gross gross bottles and cans and things. I'll do it. Um, and so trash do it, taking the trash to the dump and the recycling to the dump was my thing because I, it had to be my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remembering where I'd hidden things, remembering, you know, trying to toe the line between really buzzed and overly drunk or blackout drunk became harder and harder for me to do. And it took a lot of energy knowing, um, you know, if we were going to go somewhere socially, I had to drink a little bit before so that I could get over my social anxiety and my imposter syndrome. And then where am I going to get my next drink? Is there going to be enough? It was exhausting. It was just exhausting. So by the time my dad actually was the one who confronted me about my drinking, which, you know, I'm so grateful to him for that. Um, I was just so ready because I was so tired. I was just so tired. So, yeah. That's one of the, is so interesting how, the way we rationalize or think about something in the short term as being helpful or what we mm-hmm. need yeah. becomes the thing in the long term that ends up being the most unhelpful and even more um, challenging and stressful. Yeah, you know, especially but we can for, tell ourselves the story. Right. Well, and for me, I think it really came down to my anxiety, um, you know, which really peaked in my early twenties. And I was, you know, I've been pretty well medicated for, but I'm talking like serious, no sleeping for a couple nights in a row and vomiting. And, you know, it's really debilitating anxiety. And I think I drank to deal with anxiety, but the, you know, the jokes on me because alcohol exacerbates anxiety over the long term and definitely messes with your sleep with excess, which also then exacerbates your anxiety. I was also teaching full, very full time, like more than full time. And my hours, you know, started really early in the morning. 
Um, I even tried to maintain a running, I was a part of a running group that, so we'd go out, I think I would set my alarm. We met at five forty-five in the morning to run, um, oh. in the winter in New Hampshire. And it all just, and I was writing full time, um, toward the end of that. So it became just too much to manage. Like, and, and then when I sold the book, um, it just had to give the drinking, something had to give. And, and the thing that made sense to cut out at that point, once I was at the point where I was ready was the alcohol. Wow. I know you went to your, you went to your first AA meeting when you were 43, right? Did I mm-hmm. have that correct? Yep. Yep. What was that like for you? Like going, <laughs> like what was it like beforehand kind of connected to that? And then what was that experience like? So I had looked up meetings in the, I mean, I knew I needed help. I, I, you know, and I didn't know exactly. I, I, I just knew there was this thing out there um, called AA. But um, when I also was lying to my parents for a while and telling them when they were, when my dad was sort of concerned about my drinking, I told him I was attending meetings, which didn't make any sense. Cause he's like, so then why are you still drinking? But um, <laughs> and it just didn't make any, I was just saying stuff to make people feel better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm on top of it. But on June 7th, 2013, um, it hit, was my mom's birthday, actually. And my sobriety date is my mom's birthday because I got mm. blackout drunk at her birthday party. And lots of people that I loved were there. And, and I don't remember what happened, which, you know, I guess that's good. I don't know. It was probably humiliating. So, um, but when he came up the next morning and said, uh, I know what an alcoholic looks like and you are an alcoholic, it was incredibly, it was a big moment, not only because I was totally ready and I said the, you know, my immediate response was you're right. And I, I'll, I'm going to go to a meeting tonight, which I did. Um, my dad is also extremely, he loves me so much. He hates argue. He hates conflict. He hates, you know, he'd been, it, it just for him to come and say that to me meant that he was pushing down his greatest fears about upsetting me, angering me. Um, this was a big, big ask for him and mm-hmm. he did it. And so the fact that he did that for me was one of his most enormous expressions of love there could be. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I was also ready. So um, yeah, I went to a meeting that night. Unfortunately, Fortunately or unfortunately, I was so scared. As I said, I was a teacher at the time. Um, I was so scared of seeing either parents of my students or someone I knew. Our town was, at the time, I lived in a town of about 1,700 people. Um, mm. And there was, there was a meeting, actually, uh, two doors down and across the street from my house in our little village. But clearly, I couldn't go there because that's <laughs> way too close to home. So I went to a meeting about a half an hour away from my home, and it ended up being super inconvenient over the long term, but a godsend over the, the, you know, over the, in the big picture, because I loved that meeting. It became my home group for a very long time. It was in white river junction, Vermont. I love them there so much, but going to that meeting was terrifying because I'm Mm. used to being good at things in control, uh, always knowing I research the heck out of everything before I go into, in through the door. You know, if I, if I'm going to interview you, you better believe I know, everything that's possible to find out, um, publicly. So walking in that room and being that out of control and that helpless and that sad and that tired was really scary. And I sat down at a table with women in the front there were these big tables and, um, I started crying as soon as the speaker started to speak and I never stopped. And this woman who was sitting across from me and knitting, she just kept pulling tissues out of her bag and handing them to me just one after the other. And she just would smile. She, Oh, I think at one point she did say, this is the hardest day or it gets better or something like that. It gets easier, but it was so clearly just a wreck. And I've never Mm. experienced that where I wasn't like heaving, crying out loud. I was just, it was just fluids pouring out of me. It was, and at the very end, I did walk up and get my 24 hour chip. Um, I don't even know if I was able to say anything. I can't remember because I was so, it was so scary. Um, but yeah, that was my, that was my first meeting. And, um, that was eight years ago, eight years ago in June. So, wow. That's like some 
beautiful imagery of you just being there that first time and there being this emotional release and this woman across from you who had this quiet, like confident support, uh, being there and holding space for you. And And she, you know, I continued to see her at meetings. She never spoke of it. You know, we smiled at each other, but there was never any like, you know, I was there when you were a drooly snotty mess. She just was, you know, quietly was there for me. And, and, uh, and that's what I've tried to be ever since. And, you know, it's helpful for me that as a public person, as someone who is out there on stage in the media, you know, the more I talk about the fact that I am in recovery, um, the more people come out of the woodwork, you know, I get, DMs in every social media platform and emails through my website constantly. And um, I think that's great because that means that I'm helping other people wrestle with this thing that they're usually very, very ashamed of and scared of. Um, I just helped someone get to their first meeting actually just a little while ago. And this person had been emailing. They knew me 10, they knew me from a long time ago and we'd never really, we hadn't really been in touch in adult life. Um, And they, kept asking over and over if it was okay for us to have a phone call. Could I call you sometime just to talk about this alcohol thing and how you did it? And that was, there's three years of that just never really happening, but this person approaching and then retreating, approaching and then retreating. And then finally um, it, uh, that person was ready uh, last week and attended their mm. first meeting last week. That's wonderful. And I imagine you saw yourself in that a bit too, because it sounds like in your own history, you had a little bit of, you had a period of kind of like being aware and pulling back until you finally got to the place where it really clicked in. Yeah, I did a a whole year sober in there somewhere and I was sober during my pregnancies. Um, And it's funny because, you know, I hear things like, in fact, someone told, this person told me, you know, oh, I heard from someone in recovery that if you can stay sober for 10 days, you're not an alcoholic. And I'm like, well, that's some convenient magical thinking there. But no, that's, you know, I've done a whole year sober and I'm, you know, I'm still an alcoholic and I've had eight years sober. So, um, you know, and it's interesting to watch. I love going to um, people sort of beginners, what we call beginners meetings, especially with younger people, because I spent five years teaching adolescents in a drug and alcohol rehab uh, inpatient. And I love, love, obviously I'm a teacher and I was a teacher for 20 years. I love working with kids and I love working with people who are coming to recovery young. It's a much more complicated picture for kids. It's a different recovery picture for kids. But if a kid can come to recovery early, they are so ahead of the game. And it's such an it can be really difficult to help them sort of stay the path, but there it's an amazing uh, process to watch. I love, love working with kids. And now I'm working as a recovery coach for adults in the context of an inpatient detox um, in Stowe, Vermont called Santa at Stowe. Um, But the fun thing about that is actually my, uh, it's a part-time job and 100% of my salary goes to fund a scholarship fund for young people. So uh, people 18 to 25 can afford to get treatment at Santa. And it's obviously there's hardly anything in it because I just started, but hopefully over time there'll be the funds in there for young people to come and get really world-class treatment um, with a, you know, medically supervised uh, treatment. Uh, which is really, really expensive. I mean, really good medically supervised treatment can be very, very expensive. So I want to make sure that younger people, at least some younger people would have access to that. Wow. It's, you can really see how the sincerity of your own experience combined with your passion for teaching led you to your most recent book. Oh yeah. No, I dedicated the book to my kids and my students because you know, that's the entire book was not only trying to help my kids not go down the same path I went down and a lot of their ancestors went down, but to figure out what, how my students ended up in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab and what as a teacher, as a mentor, as a community member, as a parent, what we could do differently, what we can do differently to make sure that fewer kids end up in that situation, end up needing uh, rehab. So yeah, the, the whole, and in fact, two, one of the, one of the kids in the kids, she's now an adult, Georgia mm-hmm. and Brian were the two people whose narratives besides mine that really sort of dominate this book. And 
Georgia was a student of mine when she was 15. And by the time I met her, she was a daily drinker. She was a, she started drinking in middle school. And by the time she started high school was a daily drinker and she was homeless. She lost uh, custody of her child. She has been to jail and um, spent a significant period of time in jail. And she is a flourishing adult now. And, you know, when I taught her right after I was her teacher, she left, she quit high school because she couldn't do both. She couldn't be, um, a drug and alcohol, you know, she couldn't, uh, you know, continue her drug and alcohol use while maintaining at school, no matter how hard we tried to keep her there. So I felt a lot of, you know, what could I, what could we have done differently? And so this book has not only been, um, a guide for me as a parent. It's a guide for me as a teacher. It's a guide for schools moving forward because only 57% of schools in this country have any kind of substance use prevention program. And of that 57%, only 10% are evidence-based. So, and we know, we know what works. We absolutely know what works. We know scare tactics don't work. We know that just say no doesn't work. Um, and they're proven not to work. We know that some of those programs actually increase the chances that kids will use drugs and alcohol. So we, if we know what works, why aren't we using it all over the place, especially since um, what works is really good social-emotional learning programs with health components. And those are we know SEL programs are important and lots of schools are using them. Um, we just need to be using them in the right way with the right components. And uh, so this is not a process of reinventing the wheel. This is a process of the wheel exists. Let's just get it on the cart so that we can start moving forward and preventing um, substance use disorder in as many kids as possible. So have you, that question you just asked, um, if if we know what works, why aren't we using them? And I know this is a very broad Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about a whole country probably. Do you do you have a, any answers to that or any ideas as to why? Oh, not? yeah. <laughs> well, one is we think we should start somewhere around middle school, which is too late. We need to be starting. Um, and this, that's why the addiction inoculation covers um, kindergarten all the way through college. And in fact, when I speak to like middle school, sorry, elementary school principals will come to me and say, I really, really liked your book, and I'm going to hand it off to the middle school principal or the high school principal, because we'd love for you to come speak. Um, And I'm like, no, 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 no. Hold on to that book. I'll send a copy if you want to those other people, but you hang on to that book because this does start in elementary school. And it clearly doesn't start with discussions about, you know, here, this is crystal methamphetamine, and here's why it's dangerous. But it (laughs) starts with... uh, (laughs) That was my whole fifth grade of dare. (laughs) It starts with... um, conversations about what keeps us healthy, what we put in our body and what we don't put in our body, why we don't eat the Tide Pods, why we spit out toothpaste instead of swallowing it, why we don't take prescriptions that are meant for someone else. And the conversations can start when our kids are just first learning about, you know, those things. And they move, it moves up developmentally with kids as they grow. And the best programs really do start young in elementary school and go forward all the way um, through high school. And so there's that. They're starting too late. There's um, just assuming that if you have some old codger from someone like me um, come in from, you know, a 12-step recovery program that you met around town and you have them come in and tell their war stories about how the depths they sunk to when they were drinking or using, that can backfire. I mean, Georgia... In the book, she says that the thing that led her to drink was the old codger who came from the recovery meeting and said, I was really hurting mentally and drinking allowed me to not feel it anymore. And Georgia was like, ding, 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 ding. I'm, she was having massive anxiety and she was really struggling to cope with her anxiety. And, you know, she was being taken to the to the doctor for stomach aches and no one ever thought, oh, could this stomach ache possibly, you know, she had all the tests done on her stomach, but no one ever thought to ask, oh, is this something other than, you know, a, a mechanical problem with the stomach? Is this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an anxiety or, or a mental health issue? And um, so she was off and running as soon as she heard that, you know, alcohol could, could make you not feel stuff because that's all she ever wanted. So dealing with mental, I think we're also in a great place now where we're starting to really talk about mental health issues. We have, you know, everyone from, you know, Prince Harry leaving the royal family and talking about, you know, mental health issues and depression and suicidal ideation to, you know, it being a part of, um, 
that whole sort of name it to tame it sort of uh, elementary school cognitive behavioral therapy and, 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 uh, and um, social emotional learning, those sort of ideas that in, you know, kids, we can't make kids ignore their emotions. We have to help them um, name them and be able to understand them and sort of have some distance from them. And mindfulness practices are now suddenly more anyway. So I think there's the reason that starting too late, it's um, assuming still that scare tactics will work. Here's what could happen to you. um, And that the just say no will work. And to a degree, just say no is not, you know, completely unfounded. I mean, there's, you know, giving kids refusal skills is really important, but that's not just say no, that's, inoculation theory, giving kids actual usable, practical um, advice about things, excuses they can use and things they can refute with and things they can say. And uh, inoculation research on inoculation theory shows that when we give kids the tools they need to stand up for themselves, self-advocate um, um, and if you will, just say no, that they are more likely to be able to use those skills in practical application. And the other cool thing about uh, inoculation theory is that when we give kids tools to stand up to uh, one kind of risk, risky behavior, whether that's um, drinking, you know, underage drinking or uh, sex before they're ready or getting in a car with a drunk driver it actually, those skills actually generalize. So if we're protecting Mm. kids against underage drinking, we actually also protect them against sex before they're ready because we're giving them that sense of self-efficacy and um, their ability to advocate for themselves. So it's, it's inoculation theory is pretty cool. And it's why the word inoculation is in the title of my book. Could you, could you just say a little bit more on what inoculation theory is? Sure. So inoculation theory is really, it's named after, you know, the way vaccines for, you know, is a timely moment to talk about, you know, vaccines. The idea behind vaccines is that we show, we show the body a weakened version of um, whatever it is we want to protect the body against, whether that's, you know, they, it used to be a killed vaccine. Uh, this is obviously COVID vaccines or mRNA v- vaccines. So there is no live vaccine. There is no live uh, COVID in there. We show the body a weakened version of something so it can mount a defense so that when it sees the real version, it'll be ready and it'll have the ammunition it needs to fight that off. And inoculation theory is the same thing. So if I give my kid ways to, um, if he's out and he's at a party and someone offers him, you know, a beer, he could, he has ways to, if he doesn't want to take that beer ways to, in a way that for, especially this is importantly, especially important for teenagers and why there's a huge script, uh, lots of scripts for things that kids can say that can save face, um, ways to say, no, thank you. Or if someone says, you know, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. That you're, let's say he's a kid is in eighth grade, that your kid actually knows in his head. Okay. I know that everybody's doing it is not true because only a quarter of kids in eighth grade have had even a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. And that's only a quarter of kids. That's not everybody. So that's wrong. And even if it's just something that's in their head that they don't share, they have a way to refute that in their, at Mm -hmm. least in their own head. They may have an excuse, these sort of face saving excuses. I gave pages of in the book, um, everything from, you know, I can't have gluten. And if you can't have gluten, then you can't have most beers because there's only a few gluten-free beers or, um, I'm Asian of Asian descent. And I have this flushing thing that tends to be more common in Asians than in the general population, or I get migraines and alcohol is a huge trigger for migraines, or I have a sleep disorder and, um, alcohol is one of the worst things you can do if you have a sleep disorder or, how about throw the parents under the bus? My parents drug test or my mom smells my breath when I come home or whatever that thing is that um, the kid can put out there to say, you know, not for me, not right now kind of thing in a face saving way, then they'll be more likely to use it. They'll be more likely to talk to us about it after the fact. And they also, like I said, it generalizes to other high risk behaviors. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, of course. And the, you know, the su- I think it's the subtitle, right? Raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence. Mm-hmm. Could you just say a little bit more about what you mean by a culture of dependence? What What does that mean to you? We're in a really interesting place now where 
or I come at this from a couple of different places. I took my oldest kid to get his wisdom teeth out. And the automatic response was to hand us a prescription for the antibiotics he needed and opiates. <laughs> and I said, we're not going to take the opiate prescription because I'm not comfortable having that in our house. Um, we will call you if we need it. Or I can't remember if we took the prescription, but didn't fill it either way. We pushed back against the assumption because the reality is, is that for most kids, um, either NSAIDs, Tylenol or ibuprofen is perfectly sufficient for uh, wisdom teeth removal. Um, And because our expectation as parents has become that we can protect our children from all pain. Mm -hmm. And that's just not, the re- I mean, obviously protecting our kids from chronic pain, that's a whole different ball of wax. There's, you know, kids who have really serious pain issues. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this idea that we should be able to raise our children with zero pain, whether that's because we protect them enough that they never fall off of anything and break a bone. Um, you know, I was talking to one parent where she was proud of the fact that her toddler had never, ever hurt herself. Like, never fallen over, never gotten a scrape or a, or a bruise. And this was a point of massive pride for her because her children, her child hadn't experienced pain because she was so careful with her child that Mm. she'd never had a scrape or a bruise. And that's just not realistic. Um, So this weird place we're in where we think that we can protect kids from all pain. And then whether that's you know, psychic pain, emotional pain, and physical pain. And the receptors, by the way, are the same. So lots and lots of kids who end up, you know, abusing drugs later on um, are, many of them are treating some psychic pain. Um, You know, trauma is a big part. Uh, Adverse childhood experiences are big risk factors for um, later substance use disorder. And, uh, you know, I think that sets us up for, to believe that, A, we can have everything right now exactly when we want it. Um, Our dopamine, you know, we as human beings, if we want the answer to something like, I was noting this just the other day, we now, I now, in our family, I say we as meaning the Leahy family, we watch movies with our phones in our hands because we know we're going to have to IMDB one of those actors so we can know immediately where we've seen that person before. And not being able to get the answer to that question drives me bananas. And we didn't used to be able to do that. We used to have to sort of search our memory and blah, 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 blah. But having the answer to everything all the time, being able to have something delivered immediately. I saw on TikTok recently uh, someone getting a Starbucks delivery by drone in a in a pickup spot in a field. And I was thinking, you know, we're, we're so used to having everything exactly when we want it, wish fulfillment immediately um, and having no pain. And the problem is, is that, every time we satisfy that many of these things, for example, in kids being able to, um, you know, check to see how many likes they get or, you know, getting a a hit of dopamine from some experience online, we're used to getting those, you know, those constant hits of dopamine to the point now where like, if I even pick up my phone, reach to pick up my phone, I start to get a dopamine hit because I know I'm about to check to see if anyone has liked my posts on Instagram or whatever. Um, So we've become dependent on, you know, not feeling pain, on immediate gratification, on those hits of dopamine to make us feel better rather than actually dealing with what's making us hurt inside, um, getting at the root. And for me, the way I explain that to a lot of people is that the drink that I still miss the most, the one drink I really still wish I could have is the one I can have before, well, now that I can't have, before I leave the house to go to a social function so that I don't have to feel quite so awkward walking through the door mm-hmm. because I have social anxiety and I have, you know, imposter syndrome. And who am I to go into this group of really accomplished human beings and have anything to talk about? But since in the past eight years, I've had to just sort of deal with that instead of just covering it up with alcohol. And so, you know, I think the dependence that we have on um, avoidance and needing gratification right away sets our kids up, especially when they see us model that behavior of, oh, man, this day was so hard. I just really need a drink to unwind or we're going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and boy, there better be enough wine there because uncle Joe is going to be there. And uncle Joe makes me really anxious rather than dealing with the anxiety that 
resides within the relationship with Uncle Joe. Um, so I'm never going to tell parents that they can't drink in front of their kids, but I am going to say that you have to be really careful about the messaging you're giving your kids around why you drink, because one of the things we're modeling for them is the fix, right? Fix the emotion by covering it up as opposed to actually dealing with the emotion. So that's so, what I mean by dependence. The So that sort of cycle that you can get stuck in of the avoidance of discomfort or pain in the short term mm-hmm. with the immediacy of something that can do that. Yeah. It can get yeah. people really stuck. I mean, I think a lot, I mean, and we see this with sort of the women, the mommy drinking stuff, you know, the wine glasses with the sippy cup on it. I mean, this sort of, we, there is no more clear metaphor for, you know, the self-soothing behaviors. It's like a binky for grownups. And, um, And again, I'm not saying you can't have a glass of wine at the end of the day if you want to. I am saying that I think using alcohol to not deal with what's really bothering us, whether that's because you have a broken relationship or you have anxiety about something or you have, you know, something that's really that you should be dealing with um, that over the long run, if you were to deal with it, would make you a much healthier, happier person. When our kids see us using alcohol to do that instead, uh, that's they're seeing that alcohol or drugs are um, the when we talk about self-medicating, which I think is a really horrible term, um, that we're using alcohol to medicate our pain. And uh, and that just doesn't work over the long term. As they say in recovery, alcohol works until it stops working. And when it stops working, it's really ugly. Mm. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was really great getting to speak with you. And I love how you're open and willing to talk about your own story and how that fits into your work, because I think it makes it much more meaningful and people can kind of see how their own stories fit in with that. Yeah, it's like I said, it's been amazing to me. The more I talk about it, the more other people come to me and talk about it for the first time. I also, you know, I'm a white woman of privilege and it's easier for me to walk out in the world and say, hello, I'm an alcoholic. Take me as I am. And obviously, uh, and honestly, what often happens is people are like, oh, that is so brave of you Mm -hmm. to, you know, put that out there. Whereas someone who, um, you know, it, it might be a lot harder for someone who has other um, discrimination, you know, those, the weight of d- other discrimination on top of them to add on to that with, hi, I'm an alcoholic or I'm a, I abuse drugs or I'm, you know, I have substance use disorder. Um, so if, if I am more able to do it, then I feel somewhat obligated to do it because I think the more I normalize, look, I am a functional, happy um, recovering person, and I'm allowed to talk about that and erase some of the stigma for other people, then hopefully I can pave the way for people who feel less able to be able to own that because of whether that's because of their color, their race, their ethnicity, their, you know, gender, whatever that thing is. Um, you know, I'm fortunate in that this is my one big burden to bear in terms of stigma. Um, but for people that have lots of, lots of different things to burdens to bear. Um, it might be harder for them. So I think I have an obligation. Well, beautiful. I think that's a great way to end. And thank you again, Jess. Uh, Oh, absolutely. This has been really fun. Would you want to share how people can connect with you and learn more about, um, you and your work? Sure. Um, so everything is at jessicalahey.com. I tend to hang out a lot, um, social media wise, mostly at Twitter and, um, and Instagram. And if you're curious about the, uh, rehab where I work, it's called Santa at Stowe and it's, um, a medical detox and recovery where I work as a part-time recovery coach and do some prevention work for people who come there who do have families and kids and want to think now, okay, now that I'm sort of dealing with myself, what do I do doing going forward with my family? And so that's part of my work there. And as I said, We don't have the, there's not enough in the fund yet. So don't go calling them and saying, Hey, I would like to know about those funds that are available for my 18 to 25 year old. They're, they're not there yet. I'm working on it. Um, and hopefully in about a year, there'll be enough for us to, um, to host someone on scholarship, but that's Santa at Stowe. Um, and it's Santa at Stowe.health. Beautiful. Thank you so much again. You're so welcome. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe.
It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep when the entire world kept feeding on my greed. Try to open my soul. 